For many of you know, uh, we've been talking through the, uh, the book of Philippians, and um, we've been talking a lot about joy. We've been talking a lot about how do we find joy, and I, um, I know it's challenged me a lot. Uh, it's been good for my heart as we've been trying to look at um, joy. How do we find and keep real joy? And I hope it's been challenging to you. And if you're interested, if, you, uh, if there's a talk or a, that, that really affected you, you want to re- listen to it again, the sermons are all posted online at nmsu.ruf.org under the Messages tab. So if you're like, oh, I, I want to listen to that again, uh, you can. I record them. So, um, if the, yeah, if the, I just want to give that plug um, not because I'm all that, just in case you're interested. So, we do have a website. Yeah, <laughs> I pay twelve dollars a month for our website. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, anyways, we're gonna press on tonight. We're gonna look. Uh, we're gonna continue looking at this book, this letter. Um, so, if you remember, if you all recall rightly, uh, what we've been looking at, it's called a book, but it's actually more likely a letter. It's a letter that Paul the Apostle, who's a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He wrote to a church that he planted in Asia Minor. And uh, now, so he plants this church and he has to leave them. And now he's writing back to them to encourage them and exhort them and teach them in what he had taught them first. And so he's writing from prison and he's encouraging them to remain united, to not let infighting divide them. Um, he's encouraging them that the truest joy in their world will not be found in their own striving for acceptance and their own trying, but that true joy is found in what he calls our righteousness through faith, who we are in Christ. And so we don't have to prove ourselves, but we find joy in, uh, in Christ. Lots more that he's talked about on joy. But now, as our semester starts to wrap up, his letter starts to wrap up. He starts to get to concluding it. He's starting to, to wrap it up. And so... Uh, what we're going to read tonight is the beginning of his final thoughts, kind of like his, his summary thoughts that he's, been, that he's working on. So that's what we're going to spend this week and next week on, or is sort of his summary thoughts. And, and like any good speaker, he sort of wants to, to sum it all up, to, to, to bring it all together, and then to inspire or to exhort his readers, his audience, to go out and live in light of what he's talked about. And Maybe some of you have had experience with this sort of thing. I know I had a professor in college who was an incredible orator. The man could, he was just, I mean, truly a golden-tongued orator. And so he would give, he taught Western civilization. And he would, um, he'd get up and he'd give these lectures about like a great, you know, leader or a great philosopher or something. And then he would just inspire us to go out and be the best we could be, to be all we could be as human beings. And then he would just like slam his notebook back and say, have a great week. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go be like Churchill or whomever or something like that. And, and he's just a great orator. Uh, and so his knowledge and his passion inspired, his rhetoric inspired us to be the best we could be. That's sort of what Paul is doing tonight. When we, read, when we look at what he's doing tonight, is he's, he's trying to summarize and inspire and light a fire in them to go out and be a certain way, to, to embody and apply everything that he's talked about. And so, all right, so if there's one thing that he's trying to get across to them tonight, what is it? He's, this, he's calling them to live and think Christianly. He's calling them to live and think Christianly. And he calls us to do the same. So let's look at this text. And see what he says here. So this is, it's in your handouts. This is uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Just two verses. 
Already this is God's word. It says, finally, brothers, and you could also include sisters. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let me pray first real quick. God in heaven, thanks for your grace in giving us this letter from your servant Paul. We pray now that as we look into these two verses that you would peel back the scales from our eyes and we would see how they affect our world and your spirit would change all of us. Start with me, Lord. Start with all of us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul is exhorting them to think like I said, he's exhorting them to live and think Christianly. Well, what does that actually mean? What is, how is that applying out? So let's, let's dig in. Let's start at verse, verse 8. So let me read verse 8 again. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, initially, it seems like it's a pretty simple idea, right? It's not a whole lot. It seems pretty straightforward. He's basically saying, at its simplest, he says, think about good things. Think about things that are commendable. Find things in your world that are true and noble and just and pure. Think about those things. So he's setting up for them a list of values, a list of things that he says these are good. Find those things and think about them. Focus on these. But actually what he's doing here is there's some, there's some other things going on here that I think are really important and really in, 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 key for us to see. And, and, and let me see if I can put it this way. What he, how he is doing this is really important. And here's what he's doing. He is imitating a Greek form of rhetoric. He's imitating a Greek form of rhetoric. You can even look at it and see like there's rhythm, there's repetition. And, and, and then the lists he gives, they're very Greco-Roman values. They're very Greco-Roman values. So if you read the ancient Greeks or the Romans, like Seneca, Cicero, Epictetus, you know, the, the people who were the big thought leaders at the time that Paul's writing this, you would have read something very similar to what he had just done. He would have, they would enlist these virtues or these values, these goods, and then said, think about these things, dwell on these things, these, these highly structured rhetorical characteristics and values that a person should be or do. Be wise, be courageous, be moderate. That sort of thing. So he's, he's mimicking or he's imitating kind of the, the, the culture, the Greco-Roman culture of his day when he, tells, when he calls the Christians to, to, to act like this. Now, now here's where it's interesting. Paul is using a Greek rhetorical form and Greek and Roman values And he's saying, in effect, find the best parts of the culture that you're in. Find the best parts of the culture that you're in and celebrate those things. Think about those things. Apply those good things from the outside world into your life. He says, find the best parts of the Greco-Roman culture, the parts that are morally excellent, and apply them to your life. What he's not saying is, now that you're Christians... Circle the wagons, point the guns outward, and try to be completely different from the rest of them. He's not saying, okay, now you're different. Just get, out, get yourself out from the world. He's saying, no, be involved in the world that you live in, even if it means, in some ways, 
appreciating, celebrating, enjoying the things that are a part of your world. Now, why is that significant? Why is, he do, why is it important that he does that? Well, it's significant in this. It's, it's what he's saying here, and, and the rest of the Bible talks about this as well in other places. It says, what, is, what he's meaning, he says that every culture, every people group across history and across time has beliefs and values and goods that align with, that line up with Christianity, and that we as Christians, as, as those of us who say we're Christians, we should and we can, we can champion those, we can support those, we can endorse those, we can say these are actually really good things that Christianity agrees with. That Christianity does not come along to a new culture or religion and say, clean the slate, we're starting over. We want nothing to do with this culture. We're going to start over and we're going to paste on top of it our values. Christianity comes in and says, there are places in your society, in your culture, that are good. And we agree with those as Christians. Now, why is this possible? Why is this possible? It's because the Bible teaches that all human beings, all human beings are made in God's image. We're made in the image of God, and as such, we reflect his image in some way, right? So human society, human cultures, as diverse and different as they are all around the world, each part of every culture, every person, has something that reflects God's good character, God's good image. That there are real things in this universe that show us a piece of who God is in each person, in each community, in each family, in each culture. Another way we could say this is that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. If there's something true in this universe, it's true because it is subsumed under, it fits under the God of the Bible. It's, it's something that's true and valuable good. Even if it's not explicitly Christian, it reflects his good designs and our image in him. All truth is God's truth. Now, what does this look like right now in our today? What's an example of this that's happening? I think it happens right now in our world even today. So an example of that right now. So right now, in our culture, in our cultural moment, there's a huge value, there's a huge good for the empowerment of women against oppression, right? You see it all over the news. There was, you know, there was a huge Supreme Court battle about this thing. And yes, there's a ton of politics in that. But one of the things that we're realizing as a society is that we've not treated women well in the past. And that's not good. And we need to work on that. That abuse of women, sexual assault of women, it's not okay. It just can't continue. That, that, we, need to, that we need to realize how wrong that is and, it's, and that justice is a good thing. Now, we, Christianity, we go, yes, absolutely. Women are valuable. They're made in the image of God just as much as men. This is not like we're just going to come in and just say like, oh, no, no, we have to start. No, we come in and we say, if this is true and good, yes, we get behind this. We support this as Christians. Another example, when Christianity first came to Africa, yes, there was a mess of colonization and imperialization, and we're, we're continuing to peel back the layers of how bad it was. But not all of it was bad. Not all of it was bad. In fact, there's a, there's a scholar, he's an, he's an expert, I mean, he's a leading world-class scholar in uh, Christianity in Africa, and, and his name is Laman Sana. He's a Gambian scholar. He's at Yale, and he, he studies how Christianity affected tribal Africa. 
And he has this amazing thing. He, he, real, he says tribal Africa, when, it, when, when, when Christianity was coming to tribal Africa, tribal Africans, had a, they were very aware of the supernatural world. And they were very aware uh, of the cosmic battle between good and evil forces, of spiritual forces in conflict with each other. Well, Christianity comes in and says, yes, you are absolutely right. There is a cosmic battle. There is a cosmic struggle between supernatural forces of good and evil. And guess what? When you, our faith is on the winning side. And it comes in and it says, you're right. You've tapped into something that, you, that is correct. Christianity can come into every culture and find something that it agrees with and says, celebrate this, find this, Think on the things in this culture that are good and true. And I want you to see here tonight, I want you to see the incredible, incredible inclusivity of Christianity. The incredible inclusivity of Christianity. Because it says that every culture, every person, in each of them there's values and there's impulses and there's beliefs that are good and true, that are right, that are just that are commendable, praiseworthy. So as Christians, those of us here who are tonight and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, we got to find those parts of our culture, even our campus, that align with our faith. And we got to celebrate those. Some of you, maybe you, you come in tonight, you're like, you know, I don't know if I'm a Christian or I don't know where I stand in this. And you've perceived Christianity as judgmental and exclusive. Judgmental and exclusive. Well, I want you to see here that Christianity is actually incredibly inclusive. Incredibly inclusive. It's the only religion in the world that can do what I think it does here. It welcomes your traditions and beliefs. It welcomes them. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian or you don't know where you are, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're coming into RUF because you bring something that would be missing without it. Without, without your presence. That's how, that's how Christianity is inclusive. It welcomes in the incredible diversity of, of people and traditions and customs. Now, to those of us who are Christian, where's the message in here? Where, where does this speak to us? It says this. It says, don't, sir, don't sequester yourselves off into a little holy huddle. That's really easy for us to do. It's really easy for us to look at our world and just be like, oh, that's too bad. There's nothing good in here. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just get ourselves together, circle it up. Like I said, circle the wagons and just wait for Jesus to come back. That's not the right response. That's not what God calls us to do. Christians are often so afraid of getting dirty that we completely remove ourselves from the world that we live in. And, uh, and it's never a good thing. Paul would say, wade into the mess. Go into it knowing that there are parts of the world that actually we can learn from. Parts of the world that are commendable and good that maybe we need to get sharpened on. That we need to be tweaked on. There are lots of good and commendable things even on this campus for us to celebrate and enjoy and praise and commend. All truth is God's truth. So that's Paul's first point here in verse 8. He says, all truth is God's truth. But that's not where he ends, right? That's not where he ends. Look where he, he presses on in verse 9. Let me read verse 9 for us. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those, these things, and the peace of God will be with you. 
So the first point is, all truth is God's truth. The second point here would be, all truth is God's truth through a Christ-tinted lens. Through a Christ-tinted lens. And you're like, Jonathan, where do you see Christ-tinted lens in here? Well, hang with me. I'll show you. In verse 9, he says, all the Christian content that you've heard and learned and saw in me. Don't forget that. He says, there's this whole body of information that you've heard from me when I was with you, that you've now hearing from me this last letter that I've been, been saying to you over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking. And he says, all of that, all of that, don't forget that part. Don't forget everything, this body of Christian, unique knowledge that, I have, that, I have, that I've taught you. Now, what is that message? This, this, the content of what they've learned and seen and heard and received from him. What is that saying? Well, he's saying, don't forget that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh who came to earth to solve our problem and to bring righteousness and acceptance before God. Don't forget that Jesus Christ, the God-man, God with flesh on him, he died on the cross and was raised back to life for your salvation. Don't forget that this God-man, Jesus Christ, will come again to bring perfect justice and peace and righteousness, that he will crush his enemies and reward his friends. Don't forget that even when your life is full of pain and confusion, that God is at work bringing joy and hope and peace and community to it. Don't forget that your citizenship is in heaven, not on earth, and that because of that, you and I are called to live radically self-giving lives towards those around us in community. Don't forget that Jesus demands your total submission and your entire life. That's, That's the content of this message that he says. Don't forget that part. That part doesn't change. It's constant. It's rock solid. It's true. And here's where we come up to something that could, that could offend some of you. He's saying here, he calls us not to forget that Jesus Christ is the only way to ha- have communion with God. That Jesus Christ is the only way to have communion with God. He is God and Lord over our lives and we are not. That we are called to repent of our sins There's an incredible inclusivity to Christianity, but there's also, boy, there's some stakes stuck in the ground that says, Paul says, I can't budge on these. I won't budge on these things. There's a popular analogy that goes around often when you start talking about faith and religion and ideas. Many of you have probably heard it. The the analogy or the parable of the elephants and the blind men. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, I know a lot of you have. So it goes something like this. It, it, It I was doing some research on it today. It comes out of Eastern Asia, Hinduism and Buddhism, that sort of thing. And it says this. It says, so um, uh, five blind men come up to an elephant and they want to know what it is. And so the first one, uh, he comes out, he's blind, of course, so he reaches out and he touches its trunk. And he says, oh, this thing, it's long and slender and muscular. This thing must be like a snake. Next one comes along and he feels the leg and he says, no, 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 it's not like a snake. He feels its leg and he says, it's thick and, and strong. It must be like a tree. It's like a tree. And then the other one comes along and says, no, 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 no. He feels its tail and he says, it's short and bendy like a rope. It's like a ro-. And so each one of them is, is and, and so the, the meaning of the parable is that each one of us has our own perspective on what's true in the world, that each one of us has got a piece of what's true. Each one of us has a segment of it. And, and then it, what we all have to do is just come together and agree that no one has a total monopoly on what's true and we all just have a part of it. And the moral of the parable 
is that everyone's right, everyone has a piece of truth, and we shouldn't judge different practices or religions or worldviews because they have a piece of what's true. Now, this parable, it feels so good, right? It feels like it would be something that wouldn't be judgmental and wouldn't be, you know, except for one problem. I think there's a problem with it. It has to assume that you're not blind, that you can step back and watch what's happening. It has to assume that you're outside of the system, that you're outside of this whole process. You have to assume that all truth claims are partially right, that that statement is outside of the system, that that is a blanket statement that's actually true. But if it's actually true, then it's actually not true that all truth claims are partially right. Do you see what happens? It starts to break down on its, under its own weight. If all truth is personal experience, then that statement can't be true either, right? Now, Christianity comes up to this, and it powers straight through that, and it says, yes, part of your view is commendable because you're made in the image of God, but you need Jesus. You need this Christ-shaped lens to understand and to think and to judge and to act. Truth is not all relative. There's this Christ figure, this person who comes and plants his flag in the ground, and everything else rotates and revolves around him. So what happens when we have these two points, all truth is God's truth, and we interpret it all through a Christ-centered lens? What happens when we put those together? What's the result? I think it shows us this. I think first it shows us that Christianity is incredibly inclusive. Christianity is incredibly inclusive, but it also shows us that Christianity is incredibly demanding. Our faith, this Christian faith, is incredibly demanding. It both affirms our culture and it challenges it. It affirms our cultures and it challenges it. It affirms it. It says that every culture has values which align with the way God created the world. But it challenges it because each one of us, every person, every culture, is confronted with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His death and His resurrection and His claim to total lordship and control over our lives. The Christian gospel, it's incredibly inclusive and it's incredibly demanding. It's almost incredibly offensive. Do you see that? Do you see how it's both inclusive and demanding? It accepts us for where we are, but then it forces us to wrestle with who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? What do we make of his claims? It makes these outlandish claims that this man 2,000 years ago was actually God in the flesh who walked and did these incredible miracles and then died and came back to life and is now on a throne in heaven. It forces us to wrestle with that statement and say, do I believe that in the midst of including us and welcoming us? Second thing I think it shows us, it shows us how Christians are to live. It tells us that you and I, as we consider ourselves Christians, we need to be finding the good parts of the world around us. Celebrate them. But do it in a discriminating and a discerning way. As Christians, we should embrace the best that this world has to offer, but that we should long to understand it and filter it through Christ, who He is. Part of sanctification 
We talk about sanctification a lot in RUF. Sanctification is growing in your Christian faith, becoming more Christ-like. Part of sanctification, part of that process of growing, means greater wisdom in thinking and applying Christ to the world that you and I live in. So there's a twofold call here for those of us who are Christians. It's one, don't sequester yourself off from the world. Don't, don't you think that you can just remove yourself from the world? But two, think carefully about the content of the things that you celebrate. Don't have a holier-than-thou mindset which is removed from the world, but also don't just flippantly go and engage in any and all things. Think about them through a Christian lens. Live in a real world that's where, that, like Christianity, is true. So take politics for an example, because today is a political day. Hopefully many of you have voted. Fortunately, Christianity does not tell us how to vote, right? That's a good thing, that Christianity doesn't tell us how to vote, because then it would only tell us how to live in 2018. No, it's bigger than that. It tells us, it gives us principles. And then it says, vote for candidates who will seek the principles of flourishing, of justice, of righteousness in the community. I tell you this, don't listen to any political party that says that God is on their side. That's just not true. Christianity is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than any single party's policies. Praise God. Oh. And it's wrong on many levels for Christians to try and lo- limit it to that. Rather, you have to prayerfully discern how does each candidate, how does each law affect policies that will lead to flourishing and justice and righteousness for those around them. Find those and vote for that candidate. But on a more practical level, even farther than politics, this means that you and I are called to think Christianly, like I said at the beginning. Think Christianly about the music that we listen to. To discern, does it agree with a biblical worldview or where does it not? In the movies and the TVs that we stream and watch. In the way you spend your time, is it, do, you watch, do you spend your time just watching pointless fail videos on YouTube? Is that good? Is that the best of what our culture has to offer? Probably not. I mean, sometimes they're pretty funny, but probably not. Is our conversation something that builds up and encourages friends, or is it in gossiping about, oh, look what she did on the other night? Are the romantic relationships, are, are, are you using another person that you can, for what you can get sexually or emotionally? Are you seeking to edify and glorify and, and make that other person better? In your thoughts and practices, do they glorify God? Do they praise Christ? Do they make another person better? That's what we're called to do. And third, third thing I think this shows us is that for some of you who aren't Christians, this is a call to wrestle with the claims of Jesus Christ. Wrestle with the claims of Jesus Christ. Who is this person? We're all in this process, but wrestle with us. Who is Jesus? Did he do what this, what this book says that he actually did? And all of us, as we all try to muddle through this, we have God's promise here at the end. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. May that be true for each of us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks for this text. Thanks for what it shows us. That we live in a world that is full of echoes of your goodness and uh, of your work in our world. Father, give us wisdom as we try to discern how to live and think Christianly. Help us to filter it all through the lens of who Jesus is. Give us courage, give us good conversation, and give us wisdom to apply it well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.